Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. When Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions around the Jordan were going out to him, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming earth? Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance." And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I, and I am not worthy of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. For the word of God, word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Well, I've officially reached that time of year in our house where we started watching Christmas movies again. And as I watch the Christmas movies, especially the ones that I love the most, as I begin to watch those, you begin realizing how quickly things are changing in this world. It'd be hard to make Home Alone again with the existence of cell phones. It'd be like a one-minute story. So many things that happen in these movies, I don't even know how you would write a current uh, Christmas movie anymore. The other thing that happens in a lot of them that's central to kind of our uh, collective consciousness about Christmas is the shopping mall. I don't know about you, but it has not even crossed my mind to go to a mall for Christmas shopping in years. I'm grateful for this. But it's still central to most, to, to most of the stories, right? This, this image of going to the mall, of all the hustle and bustle of going, of course, to see Santa there. You gather yourself up, you head to the shopping center, and the shopping center was, at one time, if you grew up in the 80s especially, the center of the community. It's where everyone and everything met. You get to the center there, and you go to the mall, and there's a hustle and the bustle, and at the center of the mall, there's that one big ornate setup with the very long line that wrapped around. Christmas music plays, and you wait and wait excitedly to hopefully be the one at some point that gets to see Santa. And then you finally see him, and he smiles warmly, and he beckons you to come and sit on his knee. And Santa, as he smiles and looks at only you and gives you all the attention, asks you the world's best question. What would you like? Ah, what would you like? How often would you like to hear that, huh? And then you sit there and you give him your list, and he seems very amenable to all the requests, no matter the cost, unlike your parents. And then you get the picture, and you get to go home, and you return to your nice warm house and await the arrival of all of your dream gifts from Santa. Right? It's a classic image. It's what we still think about. Although I'm not sure how many of us are actually still doing that anymore with our kids, but it's still central to how we think about Christmas. Now, we may not go to malls much anymore, but what could better represent kind of this season for us in our time and place than the mall Santa, right? Makes me warm just thinking about it. 
And then this week I pulled out this passage to start studying for it, and it made me laugh to think about laying that story of the mall and all of that and the mall Santa compared to this Advent passage. The one that ends with, you know, burning with unquenchable fire. Pum-pum-pum. And it made me laugh because for some reason this thought hit me, which is John the Baptist would be the world's worst mall Santa. First, he doesn't even go to the center of the community. He waits for you in the hot and sweaty desert, as far from the center of your world as you can get. And then when you finally get out there and get a peek at him, he is wild looking. Probably hasn't showered, probably doesn't smell the best because he wears for clothes the skin of dead camels. Now, he does have a leather belt, which is a little Santa-esque. But my guess is it probably wasn't the thick black one with the big buckle that we're used to. He's not big on cookies and milk, but dead bugs are his jam. He eats locusts and wild honey. And then when you finally get close enough to really see him and talk to him, he may or may not yell at you. He'll demand that you repent or tell you that you're going to burn or best case scenario, force your head underwater in the river and then send you on your way. So I just walk home in the desert totally soaked. All right. Thanks, Santa John. He would get fired from even the worst mall in less than an hour. Because this time of year and with the images we hold, of course, Christmas in the desert just doesn't feel right. But I think it's safe to say that John the Baptist isn't really worried about our feelings. Right? We tend to think of Christmas as the season of addition and multiplication. We get more stuff. We spend more on stuff. I eat more stuff. We kind of amplify the consumerism that largely defines our particular time and place in history. But Advent very much works against those things. Instead of going to the mall and amplifying it all, during this season we are asked to go to the desert, to peel away, to rethink, to reorient, or to use the biblical term, repent. We are asked to stop, to consider, and as we said last week, prepare for what is to come. Prepare ourselves and to look forward for the world that God is building. To look forward to the God that shows up in this world, shows up with us, and restores us. And surprisingly, the way John tells us to prepare for what is coming, to look forward in that way, the way John kind of tells us to do that is by looking back and remembering. In fact, this entire scene of Matthew is an homage to Israel's origin story. It's not just that John quotes Isaiah's words about Israel from the past being you know, in exile with Babylon. It's not just the way that John reminds all the Israelites of the prophets of old. But John is literally leading the people back to where their story began. Because we know that the people of Israel were formed in the desert when they were saved from Egypt. As we have said many times here, the desert in Scripture is where God took a people from slavery and took slavery from people. The desert is where God turned those who were owned into children who were beloved. It is where, the desert is where he took those identified by their work for the empire and they became identified by their relationship to their creator. The desert is where God took those who were dependent on abusive and oppressive systems 
and created people who were dependent only on God's own grace for sustenance. God's people are desert people, no matter how much we try to forget it sometimes. It's the birthplace, no matter how far we've traveled. It should remind us, it should orient us, it should recall the days of old, it should distill who we are. John talks about the future by bringing people back home, backwards and forwards at once. In fact, the image I've always loved about this is the idea of swinging on a swing, where the kicking forward is always dependent on the leaning back. In Advent, we go to the desert instead of the mall because it reminds us of what is most elemental about who we are and whose we are. It strips away all the unnecessary and pointless things that we compile and call daily life. The desert distills us. It's where those things are not available to us anymore. It's outside of the world as it normally is. This is why the lockdown for us in the last couple of years was simultaneously so disturbing and sometimes freeing at the same time. It was a true wilderness. We were forced to give up that normally defined our day-to-day life. We were forced into considering who we are and what we were doing with our time. We had to focus on what was most basic and important. It showed me how I was making some things way more complicated than I need to. It showed me how I was wasting a lot of time on stuff that didn't matter at all. It showed me how dependent I was on the way the world should work. And I don't know about you, but I had different kind of phases. I got insecure, I got sad, I got anxious, I got mad, I got reminded, I got reoriented. It's what the desert does. In retrospect, it was honestly probably good for me. I was really ready for it to end, but it was probably a little bit good for me. And I was ready for it to end because the desert isn't easy. We don't usually choose it. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time in that desert trying to pretend like I was still in the city. Uh, But the desert doesn't allow you to pretend for very long. All the distractions were gone. The busyness turned into a disarming amount of time with nothing to do on my calendar. And I began to feel a little bit vulnerable, a little bit naked in the world, a little bit dependent in ways that I was not accustomed to. I was less able to pretend I was in control. And I didn't care for that. But the desert distills us. Everything ended up hinging on that elemental grace that has always been the glue that held it all together. Most of us don't choose to go to the desert, but sometimes you should. Sometimes you have to choose to go to the desert or your life is a little too unconsidered. This week, um, I downloaded an app on my phone And that app is a thing where I'm supposed to enter into it every single thing I eat during the day so I can keep track of my calories. It's the desert. (laughs) I don't care for it. It is taking much of what I don't think about during the day, what I don't consider during the day, and it's laying it bare before me. And it is not pretty. uncovering much of what was otherwise unseen and unconsidered. It's been good for me, I think, but it has stripped away a lot of what I love. I'll be honest, I don't care to live there. 
I probably won't keep that app going for the rest of my life. But if I take it seriously for a little while and I learn from it, I think it'll help me live more fully in the world I do want to live in. The desert is where we are forced or force ourselves to face the undistracted truth of who we are and how we are in this world. And that is why John loves it and lives in it and is so fiercely protective of it. It's why John reserves such harsh judgment for those he sensed weren't really there. It's why he had no patience for those who came out to visit but left the desert totally behind. Truth is, God's people may leave the desert, but the desert is never supposed to leave them. I think back to the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples uh, as they were going out and spreading the good news, if they found a city that wanted nothing to do with the peace that they freely offered them. And the instructions were that they should leave that place and knock the dust from their feet and move along. In other words, they're told to remove any traces of that place who didn't want anything to do with God's peace. They should forget it and move on to the next place. Not even the dust is stuck to their feet. Tonight, I want to, uh, I want to compel you into thinking that the desert should be the very opposite kind of situation for us. That is the opposite of our relationship with the desert that first defined us. That desert sand should work like the sand from your last beach trip. You know the stuff that somehow works itself into every nook and cranny of everything on you and around you? It covers the entire floor of the condo after you return to it for the first time after only being there an hour and you can't get rid of it the rest of the week. Months later, there's still traces of it in your car and in your sandals that you wore. That sand that never actually leaves you. That's how God's people should be with the desert that birthed us. Don't skip the desert this Advent. Choose it. Lean back into it so that we can kick forward into what's next. Don't live unconsidered in the world as it is. May we look back and remember who we are so that we can look forward and be ready for what God will do. I've never said this before, and it may be bad theology, but maybe we should borrow at least this one worn-out Hallmark Christmas movie you will probably watch this month. Maybe you can go back home and remember who you really are. Now, only meet up with your high school sweetheart if you're single. But maybe we can go home. Maybe we can remember who we really are, remember where we came from, remember whose we are. And then we can live into tomorrow while leaning back into that place that formed us. And to the extent that we then have to go back into this world as it is, may the desert sand remain in our shoes. Let's pray.